The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's reading comes from Exodus 10, verses 21 to 29. You can find it on page 34 of the Bibles under the seats or follow it on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones may go with you. Your little ones may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. But we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know what we must serve the Lord with until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let him go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For on that day you shall see my face, you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. I was thinking about uh, Thanksgiving this week, and I, I don't know, I know people say this, but I feel like Thanksgiving is sort of like the forgotten holiday. Um, you know, we, you know, Halloween stuff goes up when, like, as soon as back to school stuff comes down. Back to school, Halloween stuff comes up, Halloween stuff comes down, and the, the y'all like secretly buy the cheap candy and then you know, stash it away from the kids. And then uh, the, the Christmas stuff comes up right away. And Thanksgiving just kind of gets lost in the middle there. And I also kind of think like, sort of different than some other, like, like Christmas. Christmas, like we know or we feel, should be like a profound experience, right? I mean, because all the movies and television, so that my, my kids and I, I usually don't, I have this thing about like not having Christmas shows and songs before Thanksgiving, but uh, I don't know. I have little kids, and so I've been fudging it recently, and so I won't listen to Christmas music, but they, they played like Charlie Brown Christmas yesterday, and, and you, like, you see like Charlie Brown is searching for meaning, has this profound experience of what you know, Christmas means, and we all feel like we, should, like we should have this profound experience at Christmas, and usually it doesn't happen, but at least we're trying to chase that profound meaning, and I think Thanksgiving kind of gets lost in that. Like we, we know like we get together and we have a meal, and so there's a lot of stuff, a lot of pressure going on around that. And, and oftentimes it's like a meal with extended family. And that brings, let's just be honest, that brings its own pressures, right? Uh, the, the, all the personal interactions with each other. And so usually either the kids are like right before the meal, even if we even do it, somebody will say, hey, let's acknowledge around this table, what are we thankful for? And then we go around the table and we say things that we're thankful for. And it's really like the obvious things, right? I'm thankful for family and friends and I'm thankful for this food and I'm thankful for a house and a job. And we're probably very thankful about those things, but it's kind of funny that it's 
like even expressing that thanks is kind of an afterthought to us. At least maybe it is to me. Maybe you have a lot more thought that goes into your Thanksgiving than I do. And I was thinking about why, why is that? And I was thinking about it like this, like we rarely forget to thank the person that we think holds the power in our life, right? Like let's say your boss does something nice for you. You are very aware that the boss is holding the strings above you and you're gonna be very sure to thank that person. Uh, If you and your wife have a, particularly nice evening together. You know what I'm saying. You're gonna be sure to thank them because you're very thankful. You understand where the power lies in that situation, that relationship. If somebody has money and you don't and they give you money, you're gonna be sure to be thankful to them because they hold the purse strings and you don't. But we've, Rarely forget to thank the ones who hold the power, but we do neglect to give thanks when we think that we're entitled to something. Think about it. When you're buying lunch or at the grocery store and you give the cashier your money and you happen to be using like old-fashioned actual cash and they give you your money back, we don't say thanks. You owe, they owe it to you back. And when your spouse does something Uh, in your household or for you that you think you deserve and you have coming to you, you don't thank them because that's just what you deserve. But usually, unless there's a situation going on and your boss or your company gives you your paycheck, you don't, don't thank them because you've worked hard for that paycheck. You have it coming to you. It's entitled to you. But we, we neglect to give thanks when we think we're entitled for something. And that wasn't the case with Moses and his people. You see, Moses' people were slaves in the nation of Egypt, the most powerful civilization the world had ever seen. And as such, they had no power, no standing, no ability, nothing going for them. They, Moses and the Israelites, were stuck. There's nothing they could have done to get themselves out of the situation of being slaves in Egypt. Egypt held the money, they held the purse strings, Egypt held the military power, Egypt held all the power, the Israelites had nothing, and they were stuck. And that's why they needed God to step in to deliver them. And he does exactly that, but he doesn't do it in the way that they probably wanted to or expected at the beginning. We mentioned last week about the plagues, and we're the first nine plagues, and Exodus chapter seven through 10. And it's interesting because God has all the power in the world, right? If God just wanted to have Pharaoh let the, Egypt, let the Israelites go immediately, he could have had Moses walk in with his magic powerful God staff and like just point at everybody in the room and just start zapping them like turn them to stone or turn them to like turtles or like crazy animals or make them explode in like confetti and then like turn to Pharaoh and say, hey, you gonna let us go? And I bet Pharaoh would have probably let him go at that point. And they could have cut out all this rigmarole that happens over weeks and months or these crazy plagues that happen. Because here's the plagues that happen in order. First of all, 
Uh, Moses, God through Moses turns the water of the Nile and even there was the water, water that's standing in vessels itself into blood or something that looks like blood. And then frogs happen. That's probably not what you expected to happen in like the next plague, like water into blood. And the next thing that happens is frogs are everywhere, like hopping all over the place, getting in your house. It says they even jump in the ovens themselves. They're in your bed. Imagine how, imagine how terrible that must have been to like, you're tired and you slip into the, into the sheets at night and there's a frog in your bed, particularly if it's a dead frog. And then the third plague were biting insects. Uh, it could have been lice or mosquitoes or some type of biting uh, insect like that. The fourth plague was swarms of flies that came in. Then the fifth plague was diseased livestock, so they were dying. The sixth plague was boils that was actually both on the animals and on the Egyptians themselves. The seventh plague was uh, incredibly powerful uh, hailstorms with lightning and thunder that would destroy the fields. The eighth plague was huge swarms of locusts rolled in and ate all the, the crops of the Egyptians. And the ninth plague that we read, uh, Katie read for us this morning, was a thick darkness that they could feel. It was the last plague before the final plague happens that's actually gonna cause Pharaoh to let the Egyptians go, which is why at the end of that chapter that Katie read for us, uh, Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care to never see my face again. From the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I shall not see your face again. But think about, think about what it must have been like. I think it's easy to read stories in the Bible and it's just sort of like fairy tale or fable. Like you've, you've, you've seen it on a felt board near you or on a TV show or on a movie. And like, it's sort of like a fable. But think of what it must have been like to be alive at that time whether you're an Egyptian or an Israelite. And you're an Egyptian and you're going through each of these plagues, successively getting worse and worse. And if you're the Israelites, some of the plagues affect you and some of the plagues skip you altogether. But you're standing there looking over and you're seeing the Egyptians going through uh, with boils all over their body, their livestock are dying, their their crops are being eaten by locusts and now they're, they're in thick darkness where there's light inside the Israelites' house. Think of how like crazy that must have been. Think of the feelings that must have been going through your mind and through, your, and through even your body itself as you're just experiencing going through each of those situations. This morning we're gonna look at the terrible, glorious, and ultimately good wonders of our God. The terrible, glorious, and ultimately good wonders of our God. We're gonna see how these plagues themselves were terrible, they were glorious, and they were good, and how the situations that you and I go through in life are terrible and glorious and good. First up, the terrible wonders of God. I use that word on purpose, the terrible wonders of God. Here's the definition of the word terrible. Terrible equals awesome, extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. 
Now, those are words that we don't very, use very often to talk about God. And I think that's because we like to have a safe God. We like to have a God that we can predict, that we can understand, who is so much for us that he's almost like a, he's almost like a buddy that's here to help you out, who's just a little bit stronger than you. I don't know, some of you might have been really like big and strong in school, but I was, I was kind of skinny and scrawny and never exactly athletic. I know that's hard to believe. And so I would, I would always make it a point, any circle of people that I was in, I'm gonna be in good with the jocks, like the really, like the strong, beef, at least one strong, beefy dude, I'm gonna be on his side because I don't wanna get caught out on the other side without any help. And some of us think that God is kind of like that big, strong, beefy dude that's here to help you out, that's kind of looking over your shoulder and make sure nobody messes with you. Or he's something like a Santa Claus who's here to bail you out of problems or you, know, you, you write your letter to him, you send off a prayer to him up in the North Pole slash heaven where he lives and his elves slash angels like send down help to you to keep you out of trouble and give you gifts and money whenever you need them, whenever your back's up against the wall. We like to have a God who's safe and comfortable and predictable because really, we like to have a God who's all for us. It's sort of like his life revolves around us rather than our life revolving around him. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody here ever read any of the books in there? Anybody seen the movie? I think, and this is, I, I think every single Christian who has the ability should, should read all of the Chronicles of Narnia. They're amazing. And the, the picture of Jesus in Narnia, if you guys have read it or seen it, is the lion Aslan. And in the first book that was written, the second book chronologically in the series, uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, uh, these kids who are from England who have been transported into this world, Narnia, Boy, when you say these, these storylines out loud, they sound really crazy. But they, they've been transported out of Egypt into this world of Narnia. The first time they come in contact with Aslan, it's awe-inspiring. He's a lion, after all. And they're standing with Mr. Beaver. <laughs> they're standing with Mr. Beaver. Stick with me, guys, who haven't read it yet. They're standing, Justin, who doesn't like sci-fi or, any, or fantasy, stick with me. They're standing with Mr. Beaver, and they're looking at Aslan. And they say, is, so is he a safe lion? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. He'll be coming and going, he had said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Now, I think that God designs terrible and awesome wonders for these Israelites to see and for these Egyptians to experience because first of all, they're designed to cause the Israelites the same way they're, called, they're designed to cause us to look away from false sources of strength and power. 
You see, it's kind of interesting that each of these plagues slash wonders, because it kind of depends on what side of the fence that you're on, whether each of these things that happen are a plague or a wonder, right? For the Egyptians and Pharaoh, they're plagues. But for the Israelites, they're wonders to behold. Not safe wonders, but wonders nevertheless. And each one is designed to embarrass and expose a false god in the nation of Egypt. At least one, and we ran through it last week, each one of those plagues addresses, even the, 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 frog, the plague of frogs, there was a, uh, a frog god, it's crazy that it may sound, there's a frog god that the Egyptians worshipped. And so when you see Moses raise his staff and the frogs start to come out of the Nile and start to fill every place, it tells the Egyptians, it tells Pharaoh, our God is more powerful than your false God. And each plague, each wonder is designed to cause the Egyptians and the Israelites to look away, particularly the Israelites, to look away from the false God and look to the one and only true God. Think about it. Those Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years. They've probably adopted a lot of the culture and uh, uh, superstition of the people that they live with. So here's God. He's going to bring them out of Egypt. He's going to create a new people. We'll get to that in a minute. He's going to create a new people that will be his people. So the first thing that he does is he causes the first nine plagues that roll along and roll along, roll along, and then the, and then the final tenth plague in order to expose the false gods of the Egyptians and to cause the Israelites to look away from the false gods. But then he also designs the terrible and awesome wonders to cause them to look towards the only true source of strength and power. That's why each plague or wonder, depending on what side of the fence you fall on, where it was specifically designed to embarrass the false gods of Egypt, and that's why each plague or wonder that you experience in your life are designed to expose to you and to me the false gods that you and I worship. The false gods that you and I acknowledge and the false gods that you and I look to. Because listen, as ridiculous as it sounds that the Egyptians worshiped a god of frogs or the frog god, it's just as ridiculous to think that some of us worship Clemson football. As who I pull for, or how much money is in your bank account whenever you don't absolutely have ultimate control of that, or your retirement account, or how good looking you and I are. I said you and I, I mean, not me, but you, how good looking you are, or how fashionable you are, or how talented you are, or how well you can sing, or play an instrument, or whatever it is that you and I tend to worship and build our life and our sense of value and identity around, it's just as ridiculous as worshiping a frog god. Because it's just as false, and just as empty, and just as weak. And it cannot deliver on its promise to us. Only the one and only true God can. In that same series in the Chronicles of Narnia, 
one of the lesser read books is a book called uh, The Horse and His Boy. Anybody read that, Horse and His Boy? Oh, it's so good. So the, 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 the short version of the story to catch you guys in, and I'm gonna read this quote to you, is there's this guy named Shasta, and he was a slave boy, really. He uh, has a cruel uh, man that calls himself his father, and uh, he discovered him in a boat, which is a whole, I mean, I can't, uh, so, so good. And he runs away, he and this horse that talks, just to bring the ridiculousness of it to you. But he and this boy, this horse that talks, run away. And through different circumstances, they end up uh, uh, journeying towards Narnia with this girl named Erebus, who's a princess, and her horse that talks as well. Because they're Narnian horses, of course, because Narnian horses talk. And so they're, 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 and along the way, as they're trying to get to Narnia, stick with me, everybody, as they're on their way, they're trying to stick, as they're trying to make it to Narnia, several times they encounter danger, and several times it involves wild lions that are after them, often chasing them in the middle of the night. And when Shasta finally makes it to Narnia, and he meets Aslan, he's been through hell and back to get to Narnia. He's been in danger of his life several times. He's barely escaped lion attacks several times. And here's what Aslan says to him. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so you would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that you came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. What's interesting about most of those stories is that at the time, Shasta thought the lion was against him. He didn't know that the terrible experiences that he's going through was Shasta, was Aslan driving him to safety, to himself. And you and I, and the, we've all been through and are going through and will go through difficult, extremely, extremely difficult times of suffering. And sometimes that causes the question, where is God in this? But I promise you this. He is behind each and every seeming tragedy, each and every seeming attack, pushing you to himself and pushing you to safety. The result of experiencing the terrible and awesome wonders of God is that it creates a new people. It's the first step in deliverance or salvation. Because here's how. Because as soon as the Israelites saw that the frog God was a false God, they saw that the God of the Nile was a false God, they saw that all these gods were false gods, then they didn't have a people anymore. They didn't have a place anymore. And that's the first step that God will take you if you're not a believer this morning. That's the first step that God will take you in the road to salvation. And if you are a believer, it's the first step that he took you on the road to salvation to expose all the false gods, all the false things that you'd built your life around to such that it left you one day saying, I don't know who I am anymore and I don't have a people. I can't, I don't, I don't, I can't run with these people anymore because 
the things that we are worshiping don't seem to make sense anymore. It's a false God. It's not delivering on the promises I thought it would deliver on. I know a lot of your stories. And it's the first step that God took you through in lots of different ways, but usually it involves a sad story of tragedy that God used a lost job, a broken relationship, a girlfriend, uh, several marriages that broke up, uh, hitting the rock bottom in uh, an addiction. Some of you, it was an illness that God used to finally bring you to a place where you said, the false gods that I built my life around are exactly that, they're false. And I don't have a place in my old life any longer. The awe of the false gods is gone when we see the terrible and awesome wonders of God, the extremely impressive, daunting, inspiring, great admiration, apprehension, or fear-filled wonders of God that he directs in our lives. So first of all, these are terrible wonders of God, both to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. It causes awe and in them, but the secondly, it's they are glorious wonders of God. What makes them glorious? Well, there's two definitions of glory. I'm into definitions this morning, so stick with me. First of all, is glory is magnificence or great beauty. And secondly, glory is high renown or honor won by notable achievements. First, first definition: glory is magnificence or great beauty. The glorious wonders of God are glorious because they display his glory. They show off his magnificence and his great beauty. Can you imagine as an Israelite standing, looking out of your house where there is light over into where the Egyptians are living and there's a pitch black darkness that covers them so much that they cannot They even feel the darkness. They have trouble finding each other. There's no light can be found around them. The darkness is so thick. And as you see each each of the plagues roll out one after another, you see they display God's glory and his magnificence. Not only is he terrible and awesome and amazing and and awe-inspiring, but he is glorious. He is magnificent. His, as he stretches his muscle each time to display his glory and his power to the people of Egypt and to the people of Israel, he is showing off his magnificence and his glory and his beauty. I wonder if you and I have stopped for a moment recently to look at how God is stretching his muscles in your life and around us and displaying his glory and his magnificence. I wonder if when you go to the beach, do you just see sandcastles or do you see an ocean that is unfathomably deep and unfathomably long? When you see the sunrise and you see all the colors, when you see an amazing sunset, when you visit mountains and you see things that you've never seen before, when you have that moment in the morning when, when you're, you're driving on the way and that everything seems perfect and amazing and beautiful, do you see something that's really cool or do you see the glory of God as he's stretching his muscles, as he's flexing them for you and I to see? As he directs his wonders about us, as he takes care of you in, in the little and the little things that he does for you and me? Do you see his glory and his magnificence and his beauty? 
They display his glory. They're also deserving of glory. The second definition, high renown or honor won by notable achievements. So the, the, two, the two sides of glory are one side is that is the glory itself is God's magnificence and his glory, his beauty being displayed. But also we glorify God when we see his magnificence and his beauty. We see how deserving he is and we give him high renown or honor won by his notable achievements on our behalf. As the Israelites looked out as each time, each plague, each wonder that God rolls by, they had to stand in awe and they had to give him glory for what he is doing. As we're in the week of Thanksgiving this week, I wonder, could we remember afresh and anew, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, all the things that he has done for you to bring you to this point? I know my story. I know a lot of your stories. No matter how difficult life may be, no matter how much life may not be where we want it to be, if we were just to follow the path that would have been set out for us apart from Christ intervening on our behalf, we were headed for certain, certain, certain collision. And yet he intervened. The glory of God doesn't just Following God isn't just about filling our minds with knowledge. It's not about coming here and learning things or going to C group or a class and learning more things about God. It's about experiencing and tasting his magnificence and his glory so that it fills more than just our minds, but it, it stirs our affections. It piques our imaginations. It, it inflames our hearts when we see God's glory. It does something more than just filling our mind with information. It fills our hearts. It breaks our souls. It, it changes us to the very core of who we are in our affections. We are undone by them. I don't think the Israelites could just like stood there seeing the wonders of God portrayed before them and said, hey kids, God's word says that he is amazing and awesome and he loves you very much. They were affected to the core of their being with how God was flexing his muscles on their behalf to display his glory. And this morning, this Thanksgiving week, I wonder if we can see afresh the wonders that he has performed in our lives and is performing now and to feast on his glory. The wonders of God as the Israelites saw them, as we see them, they are terrible. They are awe-inspiring. They are glorious wonders of God. They display his magnificence and his glory and his beauty, and they are worthy of renown. They are worthy of praise. They are worthy of honor. They are worthy of us our, giving our lives to them when we see him, giving our lives to him as we see them portrayed before us. But then lastly, the wonders of God are ultimately good. What is ultimately good may not be obvious from the beginning. See, many of the plagues affected uh, 
only the Egyptians and not the Israelites, but some of the plagues affected both. And either way, they would have been nerve-wracking for the, for the Israelites. Can you imagine? You're slaves. This man named Moses keeps going to Pharaoh, and every time Moses performs this miracle and this crazy thing happens, Pharaoh seems to soften for a bit, and then he hard, hard, hardens more. You're so life under the oppressor is getting more and more difficult for you. You're thinking, hey, this thing that you're doing, Moses, it's not helping a lot. It's actually taking us in the opposite direction. It's not causing Pharaoh to loosen his hand and get us out of here. It's causing Pharaoh to clamp down harder. It seemed to do more harm than good for a long time. But those two sides of the plague again for the Egyptians... It was judgment, but for the Israelites, it would prove to be their freedom. It seemed hard, it seemed difficult. It made life a lot more difficult for them, and yet it was for their ultimate good. It was for their ultimate freedom. And that's good news for us this morning. That's good news for you this morning because whatever situation you're in, the final chapter isn't written yet. You might be in a very difficult time right now. You might be in the middle of what seems like a tragedy but the final part of the story isn't written because God loves to take tragedy. He loves to take difficulty. He loves to take our difficult times and use it to push us to him and for it to be the beginning of a new story for us, for it to be the beginning of freedom. What the same acts that were plagues for the Egyptians were deliverance for the Israelites. Again, for you believers, a lot of, your, a lot of the things in your life that are, happened to you that were very difficult, God used it to push you to him He's continuing to use it to push it to, to him. And if you're not a believer here this morning and you're in the midst of tragedy and suffering, maybe God is the lion in the middle of the night that sounds like a roar to cause fear, but he's pushing you to ultimate safety and freedom in himself. Think about how, how the first Thanksgiving was instituted. I was, uh, again, I was, um, yesterday morning, Sophia and I were up early, and Sophia was watching uh, a Charlie Brown show. It was about the, uh, the first Thanksgiving, the, May, the boys on the Mayflower up to the first Thanksgiving together. And so I enjoyed watching that with her and sharing that time with, with her, and, and frankly, it was, it was re-educational to me. I remember, it reminded me a lot of things I'd forgotten about the story. That's kind of embarrassing to say. But as I was watching it, I was thinking about afterwards, how did they decide to give thanks, these pilgrims? They could have decided to build a monument, to really sacrifice, to build a great monument to celebrate what God had done for them. And they, they were... They were, they were going to die. Many of them already had whenever they happened to meet help, Native American help that guided them through the tough winter 
and led them through the next summer into the fall to the biggest harvest. I mean, that saved them. They could have built a monument. They could have sacrificed and given gifts to God. They could have said, all right, we're gonna set aside all our earthly desires for his sake and we're gonna fast and pray today and thank God. But it's interesting that instead, as they remembered their struggles and God's faithfulness to them, they had a feast. They got together, offered thanks to God, and enjoyed the good gifts that he had given them. They laughed and they danced. They told stories remembering the wonders that God had performed for them to bring them to safety and to salvation. That kind of thanksgiving, the feasting and the laughing and the dancing, it previews the feast that's coming. When all who have been redeemed and won as a prize by the wondrous acts of God in Jesus Christ will feast and laugh and dance and celebrate in ways that we can't yet imagine in the glory of God. all in celebration of the most unimaginably terrible, the most incomparably glorious, and the most unfathomably good wonder that God has ever performed. Think about it. If you're watching the crucifixion, not Hindsight being 2020, the way we look at the crucifixion now, but if you're watching the crucifixion as one of the disciples, it was the end. If you're watching the crucifixion as one of the angels, all this that God had done had now been sacrificed and was lost. And yet, that moment was the moment of victory and deliverance for God's people. It was terrible and awesome and glorious and good. And we are going to feast and celebrate in thanksgiving for all eternity in wonder of that moment. So this moment, as we get ready to celebrate communion together, this family meal Let's let this small table be a preview of that day. Let's let this small table be the beginning of a week of feasting and celebrating of the terrible, awesome, glorious, and good wonders of God that he has done on our behalf, climaxing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Let's feast upon the glory of God this morning and this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving together with hearts prayerfully, freshly stirred by the wonders of God that he has done on our behalf. Let's pray. Fathers, we 
stand on the brink of a Thanksgiving week as we look at this story, as we think of the wonders that you performed before the Israelites. It was judgment upon the Egyptians, but deliverance and freedom and salvation to the Israelites themselves. God, we may not see swarms of locusts and water turned to blood, but we have seen more amazing things. We have seen you intervene in in our lives to bring us to salvation. And as such, then we have seen the most terrible, amazing, awesome, glorious, and good wonder that you have ever performed. God, I pray our hearts would be filled with joy and celebration at that. And that this meal that we prepare to have together would be the first taste, the first course of a week-long feasting and celebrating and thanksgiving to you for the wonders that you have performed on our behalf. And Father, if any person is here who is not a believer in Christ, I pray that this would be the morning that they would see all that you've done in Christ and all that you are doing in their circumstances of their life to bring them to this point to acknowledge you as Lord, to confess their sins, to accept your sacrifice on their behalf to cover their sins, and to be born anew and again into your family. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.